Well, our theme this morning is that of sorrow, godly sorrow. We're not talking about the sorrow. Is this going to work, James? Oh. Not talking about the sorrow of bereavement or the sorrow that comes through unfulfilled longing, that, that ache. But the sorrow that Paul talks about here, particularly in verses 8 to 10. Sorrow that comes from a conviction of sin and leads to repentance that results in joy. The sorrow that comes from a conviction of sin that leads to repentance and results in joy. So three points this morning, and a bit different to usual, um, three questions for us. Firstly, are we willing to make each other sad? Do we know how to deal with the sadness of conviction? And are we experiencing the joy of repentance? Are we willing to make each other sad? Um, Love and rebuke. Do we know how to deal with the sadness of conviction? Earnest repentance. And are we experiencing the joy of repentance? Regret-free rejoicing. So firstly, are we willing to make each other sad? You might be thinking, oh my goodness. (laughs) What have I come to this morning thinking about being sad? Are we willing to make each other sad? Hopefully it's all going to become clear. And as you can see, it ends in rejoicing. Is loving rebuke a part of our experience here at Barney's? I think this passage leads us to expect that loving rebuke and the resulting godly sorrow will be part of any healthy church's experience. Let me read to you again verses... 8 to 10. James, I might let you do the clicking. We'll leave it there. All right. Uh, Verse 8 again. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy. Not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Now, we need to get a handle on the history of the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians. And so I've got some dot points on the screen. I'm just going to walk you through the, um, the history of their relationship. Paul made two visits to Corinth and wrote four letters. Now, two of those letters have been lost. Uh, We've got the second one and the fourth one, and we call them 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. But we need to remember 1 Corinthians was actually his second letter, 2 Corinthians was actually his fourth letter. Paul visited Corinth firstly in 50 to 52 AD. You can read about it in Acts chapter 18 and he spent about 18 months in the city and during that time the church was firmly established as Paul preached the gospel the good news that Jesus is Christ the Lord that Jesus the carpenter from Nazareth is none other than the promised Savior King the Christ the Messiah who lived the life we should have lived died the death we deserve to die and rose again blazing a trail to glory so that all who are united with Jesus by faith 
have their sins forgiven, accounted right with God, and given the certain hope of eternal life with Jesus in the restored creation. So Paul was there in Corinth, 18 months, preaching the gospel, teaching, discipling, and the church was established. Then after that time, Paul kept up a close correspondence with them. He wrote to them, they wrote to him, he wrote again. His first letter, as I said, was lost. His second letter is what we call 1 Corinthians. And in that letter, Paul deals with a whole load of different issues. Some that were raised by the Corinthians in their letter to him. Some that Paul had heard about and felt he needed to address. So the issues that Paul covered in 1 Corinthians include factions in the church, cliques, people forming around their favorite preacher, snobbery in the church, the social elites separating themselves from others, pride, the Corinthians using their spiritual gifts not really to serve others but to show off. He addresses marriage and singleness and order in the church, doctrinal error particularly around the resurrection and sexual immorality that Paul addresses very strongly. Now that's quite a list of issues uh, in a church. And you've got to remember, there was no history of Christianity in Corinth. This was a, a first-generation pioneer church. And so it's no surprise, really, that they needed instruction on any number of matters. Especially when you remember that Corinth was a young, thriving city. Uh, a city where everything happened. And so it's no wonder that the church needed some guidance in how to follow Jesus in the midst of a pagan culture. So that was 1 Corinthians. All sorts of stuff going on in the church. Then Paul made a second visit, around 55 AD. And this was not an easy visit. Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 2, as painful. Paul gave some pretty strong warnings to certain people in the church which caused a fair amount of turbulence. And so although Paul had intended to visit again a third time, because the church was in such a state of turbulence, he decided he couldn't go again so quickly. And so instead of visiting, Paul wrote again a third letter. Again, that's lost. But this was Paul's strong letter that he talks about in the passage before us this morning. It's a letter that caused some hurt and sorrow to the Corinthians. But as Paul says, it was a sorrow that led them to repentance and a renewal of affection for Paul. Titus was the courier of the letter. Paul talks about Titus in verse 7, how he delivered the letter and then came back with news of how they'd responded and Paul was comforted as Titus told him about their longing for Paul, their sorrow, their ardent concern for him. Paul's joy was greater than ever. Now we're not told what the particular issue was that Paul was addressing in this strongly worded letter. We're left guessing. Certainly there was plenty to choose from. If it was one of the issues he had addressed in 1 Corinthians, still around. Uh, verse 12 of our passage maybe gets closest to describing what was going on. He says, even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. 
So we don't know. Maybe Paul was the injured party. There are certainly hints of that elsewhere, but we don't know for sure. So this third letter, very strong, and Paul says he was a bit torn over whether he should have sent it or not. So verse 8, uh, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that it hurt you. It's a bit like, I think, when you write a strongly worded email and you hit send, and then you've got five seconds, you know, undo! <laughs> I'm not sure I want to send it yet. Or you do send it, but you know it's very strong, and you send it with a prayer that it's going to be well received. Paul's a bit torn. He knows it's going to cause hurts. And yet when he hears the news from Titus, he has huge relief and immense joy. Phew, they, everything's okay. They've responded well. Verse 7, my joy was greater than ever. Verse 13, by all this we were encouraged. And Paul's also delighted in the fact that Titus and the Corinthians uh, have mutual affection for one another. Paul's letter produced the desired effect, godly sorrow that led to rep repentance and resulted in joy. Now, from all of that, what do we need to take away? Well, clearly, Paul's relationship with the Corinthians was a, a deep one, a heartfelt one. And Paul was willing to say what needed to be said, even though it hurt the Corinthians, because he loved them. It's clear from this chapter, Paul was emotionally involved with these Christians in Corinth. Gospel ministry for Paul was not just a job. Gospel ministry for Paul was all about investing in people. As he says in verse 3 of our passage, I do not say this to condemn you. I've said before that you have such a place in our hearts, we would live or die with you. I've spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I'm greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. You see, Christian ministry, Christian service is all about people. And therefore, it will inevitably involve heartache and sleepless nights and difficult conversations. Now, at Barney's, we do family well. We live out our identity as family. We love one another as brothers and sisters. But I wonder if this is an area of challenge for us. I know it is for me. Do we love each other enough to say what needs to be said? To gently rebuke one another? To ask the difficult question about a decision that someone's made or a direction that someone's taking? to do that even if it causes hurt and sorrow because we care, because we care for that brother or sister's spiritual health. Now that is always hard to do, but maybe it's especially hard in our current culture in which individual freedom and individual expression is so highly prized and to question someone's values and priorities is a big no-no. But the whole Old Testament, the whole New Testament makes it clear we need to be doing this. You know, the New Testament is full of what are called one another commands, which makes it clear the Christian life isn't an individual enterprise. It's something that we do together. We need one another. And if you read through those commands, you'll see we need to be teaching and admonishing one another. 
rebuking one another, encouraging one another, warning one another, exhorting one another, confessing to one another, and forgiving one another. If our lives are being shaped by the gospel, then we'll have the humility and the security to receive a hard word spoken in love. And we'll also have the depth of love to deliver a hard word. Now, we're not going to be able to do this with everyone, obviously. There needs to be a a level of trust to have this kind of conversation. And so it'll be particularly in our DNA groups. That's our small discipleship groups, three or four, meeting regularly to encourage one another in following Jesus. It'll be particularly in that context or with others that we know well that this has happened. But it's worth us pausing and asking whether it's in your DNA group or or with another Christian friend, do you have people in your life who love you enough to make you sad? Have you given them permission? And maybe that needs to be said explicitly to your DNA group, to a Christian friend, to say, if you ever see something in my life that concerns you, I want you to ask me about it. I'm giving you permission to do that because I know I need it. Maybe that's the action from this morning's sermon, to to have that conversation, that permission-giving conversation. Let me be really explicit and say, if you are in a DNA group at Barney's, next time you meet, whether that's this week or whenever, have that conversation. You might decide you're not yet ready. Maybe it's a newly formed group, you haven't got that level of trust yet, but have the conversation. Are we willing to give each other permission? If you see something in my life that concerns you, I want you to say something. I want you to ask the difficult question. Please be gentle, but don't be silent. That's the first question. Are we willing to make each other sad? Is loving rebuke part of our experience here? We're going to speed up. Question two. Do we know how to deal with the sadness of conviction? When when someone calls us out on something, asks a probing question, and we're convicted of some sin in our life, how do we respond? Now, Paul talks in the passage about two kinds of sorrow. In verse 10, he says there's a a godly sorrow and a worldly sorrow. One results in salvation, one in death. Now, we talked a bit about this in the, the Prodigal God series, so I won't say too much, except to say it's possible to respond to a conviction of sin and to be really sorry, but for that sorrow to be all centered on myself. It's called self-pity. I'm really sorry about the consequences of my sin, and I might even make uh, what looks like a groveling apology, but all I really want is for you to forgive me so that I don't need to feel bad about myself anymore. I'm motivated to deal with the consequences of my sin. But there's no real sorrow for the sin itself or the offense that I've caused or the damage that I've done. And there's no real motivation to actually make restitution, to see that things are put right and justice is done. 
In his letter, Paul said what needed to be said, and it hurt the Corinthians. They were convicted, and thankfully, they responded with godly sorrow. That led them to repentance. And in verse 11, Paul charts the course of their repentance. And we'll come to that in a minute. The word repentance literally means change of mind. You do an about turn in your thinking. But it never remains in the mind. It's a, a change of attitude that leads to a change of action. A change of belief that results in changed behavior. John Stott, in his book, Basic Christianity, gives this definition. Repentance is a definite turn from every thought, word, deed, and habit which is known to be wrong. It's not sufficient to feel pangs of remorse or to make some kind of apology to God. Fundamentally, repentance is a matter neither of emotion nor of speech. It is an inward change of mind and attitude towards sin which leads to a change of behavior. Repentance lies right at the heart of Christian experience. The first recorded word of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel is repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And when you think about it, it makes sense. If Jesus is king, if Jesus is Lord, it means I'm not in charge of my life anymore. And so the beginning of the Christian life is repentance. To turn around, to stop going my way, and to start going Jesus' way. And then every day after that, to keep coming back, to keep turning away from self to follow Jesus. Turning away from self to follow Jesus. Turning away from self to follow Jesus. A new attitude, a new belief, Jesus is Lord, that results in new action, a change of behavior. And so what did repentance look like for the Corinthians? Well, in verse 11, Paul says, See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves. Now, earnestness is literally diligence, haste. There's no reluctance or procrastination. They're going to deal with it straight away. What, what eagerness to clear yourselves, not to defend yourselves, but to put things right. What indignation, what alarm that this sin has been committed, that this should happen in the church. What longing for reconciliation, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. So no procrastination, no reluctance, no defensive behavior, no minimizing or excusing what's happened. They took responsibility for it and their repentance was full and thorough. Jim Packer, in his book on holiness, lists five components of biblical repentance that really echo what Paul describes here. A realistic recognition that we have wronged God. A regretful remorse at having dishonored God. Reverent requesting of God's pardon. Resolute renunciation of sin, turning away from it, wanting no more to do with it and a requisite restitution to those we have hurt. How does your typical repentance compare to that list? When there's real, thorough repentance, the, the tears are real. 
and the determination to deal with things is real and the change is real and there's also real joy which brings us to the third point are we experiencing the joy of repentance maybe we could add a, um, another dot point to the end of the list you know these are the components of true repentance and they result in regret-free rejoicing look again at verse 10 in our passage Paul says godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets when you turn from your sin to trust and follow Jesus you are saved you receive salvation your sins are forgiven and you're received by God with open arms this is the prodigal God response that we've we were looking at last month when the wayward younger son returns home his father welcomes him with open arms embraces him receives him back in the family as a son a beloved child and that is true not only for your initial repentance at the beginning of the Christian life but for every time you repent repentance leads to salvation it's not that your sin makes you unsaved and then through repentance you're saved all over again but every time you repent you experience more of God's salvation you see salvation isn't just something that happened in the past God is saving us past present and future God has saved us from the penalty of sin he is saving us from the power of sin and he will save us from the presence of sin when you come to God in repentance, you experience his forgiveness afresh. You, you experience his gracious welcome. Your guilt is atoned for. Your shame is covered. Your conscience is cleansed. Notice the two words in the middle of verse 10. Repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets. That's interesting, isn't it? I think what Paul is saying is that you know, when I turn back to the Lord Jesus and have my sins forgiven, there may be a sense in which I wish I'd never done that. But it is dealt with. I don't have to keep revisiting that sin. I don't need to carry the guilt for it anymore. I've been washed clean. Genuine repentance leads to salvation such that my sin is removed from me as far as the east is from the west. In Micah chapter 7 it says, Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Isn't that a beautiful image? Just think of your worst sins. And hear what God says. He delights to show you mercy. And he takes those sins all your sins and he treads them underfoot and he hurls them 
into the depths of the sea. So you don't need to carry them anymore. Repentance leads to salvation and leaves no regrets. Last week in the Gospel 101 course, we were discussing a survey question that we could ask people in the community. And one of the questions we came up with was, how do you deal with feelings of guilt? Kat mentioned that uh, inordinate feelings of guilt, inappropriate feelings of guilt, are one sign of depression. It's one of the kind of diagnostics of depression. And there is inappropriate guilt, false guilt. But I think it's interesting that guilt is seen as such a problem. And it is such a problem because we've got no way to deal with it in the world. But trying to suppress feelings of guilt don't make the guilt go away. And when you are actually guilty, it's right that you feel guilty. Psychologists may not have a way to deal with that, but Jesus does. The journalist uh, Marganita Lasky famously said, What I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have no one to forgive me. The gospel is such good news because we come to God and we can come with all our guilt and all our shame and through repentance we receive full forgiveness for every sin. We can be washed utterly clean, whiter than snow. We don't have to do anything ourselves to atone for our guilt because Jesus has made full atonement for us when he died in our place on the cross. On the cross, Jesus was condemned so that you and I can live with the assurance that the banner over our life reads no condemnation. No condemnation. That is what we're going to celebrate in a few minutes as we share in the Lord's Supper together. But let me ask you those three questions again. Are we willing to make each other sad? Loving rebuke. Do we know how to deal with the sadness of conviction? Earnest repentance. Are we experiencing the joy of repentance and the forgiveness that comes? Regret-free rejoicing. Let's pray. And I'll give you a moment in quiet to respond to God in your hearts, then I'll lead us in a prayer, and then we'll actually go straight on into the words on the screen as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Father, we pray that you would so work the truths of the gospel into our hearts, that we would have a deep love for one another that means we're willing to say what needs to be said and that we would be able to respond to conviction with earnest thorough repentance and that we would be a community that is experiencing the joy and freedom of forgiveness regret free we pray in Jesus name and for his glory Amen